0: The COVID-19 pandemic has put a spotlight on our frontline healthcare workers. Many of them have worked hard to take care of people close to you and me. One of the renowned hospitals leading the charge against the pandemic is Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston.
1: All Inclusive, a podcast on inclusion, innovation, and social justice with Jay
0: Ruderman. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, and this is All Inclusive. Today, we have the President of Mass General, Dr. Peter Slavin, joining us. Dr. Slavin, thanks for joining us on All Inclusive. I want to begin by thanking you and the first responders who worked hard during this past year and continue to do so during the pandemic, and for your dedication in advising leadership from all over the world on the best ways to tackle this terrible illness. Tell us how has MGH reacted initially to the pandemic, and are there any procedures that you will continue to implement, especially with the potential for a second wave?
2: Well, thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to uh, have a chance to uh, talk with you. I I could go on for a long time about the different ways in which we responded to this uh, unprecedented situation, but I guess I'll focus on three. One is the care itself. I mean, we had to turn the hospital inside out and upside down to respond to the demands that we saw beginning in March that peaked in April. Uh, At our peak, we had 450 COVID-positive patients in the hospital. That represents about half of our hospital beds. We normally have one medical intensive care unit for medically ill people. At that point, we had 12 intensive care units requiring us to redeploy staff, both doctors and nurses from around the hospital. And we normally have about 40 patients in the hospital on ventilators. I think at our peak, we had about 150. So the, uh, the effort involved in just responding to that initial surge was, uh, was amazing. On the outpatient side, uh, our outpatient activity fell by about 50%, but almost 85% of it was now being de- delivered via telemedicine, uh, something that we did very infrequently in the past, less than 1% of our uh, outpatient care was telemedicine prior to February or March. It went up to 85%. It continues to run at about half of our overall outpatient activity. So that's that's one area. Second area that I would just focus on is the research effort. We have the largest research program of any hospital in the country, and both the fundamental as well as the clinical research effort that we launched has been um, re- remarkable to see. We're involved in multiple trials of possible therapies for COVID-19. We were involved in the one that showed that Remdesivir was uh, somewhat effective in shortening the, that illness. Uh, and we have two vaccine candidates that are uh, in, in the works uh, in various stages of uh, development. So the research has been very exciting. And then the third area I'd comment on is just the incredibly dramatic connection that we've seen between what's happening in the hospital and what's happening in the community. Uh, at baseline, about 10 to 15% of our inpatients at Mass General are Spanish-speaking people. And we noticed uh, pretty early on that uh, when it came to our COVID-19 uh, patients, almost half of them were Spanish-speaking, which made us uh, made it cl- very clear that uh, they were coming from Revere, Chelsea, and East Boston. And so we unleashed a, a major community health effort in partnership with the leaders of those communities to try to stem the illness, mitigate the disease as quickly as possible. And so it was a real demonstration of the, uh, the power of the social determinants of health to, uh, to result in this uh, virus so disproportionately affecting uh, disadvantaged communities like those.
0: So I wanted to maybe delve into a couple of those issues a little bit more deeply. Probably what most people want to know is how far away are we from a vaccine? And, and I'm sure there are institutions all over the world that are working on vaccines. How much coordination is there between hospitals and private enterprise in, in trying to find a vaccine?
2: I believe there are over 100 vaccine candidates at various stages of testing, uh, around the world. As I said, we were involved actively in two of them. I think the more the the merrier because uh, coming up with an effective vaccine is part science in part luck. is using a sports analogy. The more shots on goals we take with vaccines, the more likely it is that we're going to develop one or more that are safe and, and effective. And in addition to just coming up with a vaccine, there's no there's no company, no organization that can uh, individually produce all the vaccine necessary to vaccinate everyone around the world. And so we're going to need multiple candidates and multiple manufacturing facilities to be able to meet the, uh, the demand. So I'm, I'm hopeful if if all, if, if we get lucky, we could have a vaccine that's um, sh- shown to be safe and effective by the end of this year, and maybe in production or early, early next year. But I, I think we're going to have to get lucky for that to happen.
0: And if we do get lucky, the production of that vaccine will take some time it doesn't it, it won't happen overnight
2: it won't happen overnight but because of the unprecedented investments that are being made it'll ha- happen a lot sooner than usual uh, for example in the case of one of our vaccine candidates that's actually the work of a investigator who's based at the Beth Israel Deaconess but that vaccine has been picked up by Johnson and Johnson and the federal government while the clinical trials are ongoing related to this vaccine the production facility is already being built and fitted out and so th- federal government and J&J are investing a huge amount of money so that if, if indeed the clinical trials are favorable, they can swing into production almost immediately.
0: Another issue that you talk about is telemedicine, which I myself have been involved with with, with my doctor, and it's been very successful. Is that the future of medicine?
2: In in terms of telemedicine, I I don't think it will completely replace uh, medical care as we know it, but I think it can replace a fair amount on the um, outpatient side. I mean, you can't really do an adequate physical exam via telemedicine. You can't do procedures on people via telemedicine. You can't do uh, fancy radiology images uh, like MRIs via telemedicine. But there's a lot of uh, visits that uh, can can be done remotely. I mean, there are a lot of, for example, cancer patients who see their oncologist on a regular basis, basically go over the the results of the scans that have been done. Scans will still have to be done uh, in person, but there's no reason why that visit couldn't potentially be done remotely.
0: You talked about minority populations being overly affected by COVID-19 and the amount of Spanish-speaking patients in the hospital. I know you've talked about this in the past, but but do you know why that is the case?
2: I mean, I think it all comes down to the historically referred to as the social determinants of health. Uh, People in those communities have more crowded housing conditions, which makes it uh, more likely that the disease is going to be spread if one person gets it. Uh, People in those uh, communities have uh are essential workers uh, and therefore have to go to work and so that puts them at higher risk i think there was a study that was published in the new york times about two months ago which compared using uh, cell phone gps technology movement of people in affluent communities in this country as opposed to uh, uh, lower income communities and it was quite clear that in the affluent, affluent communities People were basically sheltering at home and in the lower income communities, they were going to work and leaving the house much more frequently. So I, th- I think that put people
0: at risk. Can you talk a little bit about the financial impact on Mass General Hospital, which I'm sure is taking place at hospitals all over the country, people putting off elective surgeries and other procedures that that would bring income into the hospitals? What's been the financial impact on, on, on the hospital?
2: Yeah. Just to clarify, we instituted a salary freeze, so we're not increasing people's uh, salaries for the time being, except for people whose incomes are less than 55 thousand dollars a year this um pandemic has had a very significant impact on our finances for several months uh, our outpatient activity was about half of what it normally is uh, that that had a big took a big toll on our revenue or during that same period of time our expenses didn't really change uh, much at all and on the inpatient side we, we also saw a temporary downturn but that sort of bounced back more quickly and we obviously had lots of very sick um COVID uh, patients in, in the hospital. Uh, we have received some support from the federal government for, so that that has helped us offset some of the losses, but we're still lost significantly as a result of this pandemic.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the mental health of first responders, um, doctors and nurses, other people working at the hospital and, and coming to the hospital as first responders. We, our foundation, was proud to partner with MGH to support the hospital and the healthcare workers uh, regarding mental health. Can you talk a little bit about the programs that are being offered to uh, frontline hospital workers and and how they're dealing with issues of mental health?
2: I mean, I think the psychology of this for the staff has been complicated. I think on the one hand our staff have the privilege of caring for people and being involved in our society's biggest challenge in our lifetime. Uh, Our staff is very used to caring for complicated sick patients, and so I think that played to their strength as well. Uh, But I I think the sheer magnitude of it uh, was overwhelming. The suffering that people witnessed was overwhelming. Having to care for patients without their loved ones around, I think was very difficult, not only on the patients and their loved ones, but the staff, uh, themselves. Uh, And finally, uh, the fear associated with caring for these patients, not knowing if you were going to get sick, not knowing if you were going to bring the disease home to your family. I think the combination of emotions, feelings is complicated. And and so it definitely took took a toll. I mean, we, we bent over backwards to try to support our staff during this uh, period of time. I mean, we have a very active employee assistance uh, program that has made itself available to our entire staff. On some of the units that were caring for lots of COVID patients, we had these regular uh, sessions where people could talk about the experience that they were uh, going through, and I think they, they found those uh, comforting. We, we also were overwhelmed with Support coming from outside the organization, which I think our staff greatly appreciated. I don't think there was ever any period in the history of our hospital where our staff was better fed than they were during the last few months. Mm. We just had countless donations and meals. So, I mean, it it was pretty overwhelming to see the amount of external support. And I think our staff really appreciated this. I I don't think we're really going to know the full toll that this has taken for months or, or years. In some ways, I think it may be similar to what we've seen with um, soldiers returning or veterans returning from, uh, uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan, suffering from the invisible wounds of, uh, of war. Uh, I think there will be some people who are permanently scarred by this, what they've been through over the last uh, few months. And, and we, we have this program in collaboration with the Red Sox called the Home Base Program for veterans suffering from a post-traumatic stress. And, uh, and we're in active discussions with that program about whether they could potentially broaden their services to make themselves available to, uh, to
1: healthcare workers as well. You're listening to All Inclusive with Jay Ruderman. You can learn more View the show notes and transcripts at rudermanfoundationorg slash
0: all-inclusive. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you are listening. As a society, what have we learned and what has the government learned from this pandemic in the event that there's a spike, that there's a second wave, or a different pandemic uh, presents itself and we have to go through this all over again?
2: I hope our government is educable. Um, Obviously the response around the country has been highly uh, variable and uneven quality. Uh, I'm particularly pleased with what's happened here in Massachusetts. I think the Baker administration has done a very good job working with the healthcare community, working with people throughout the state to try to balance um, dealing with this pandemic with trying to sustain our our economy in some way and I think understand that you can't really sustain the economy without first and foremost controlling the virus. So if we're proud of the fact that at least at the moment, Massachusetts has the lowest rate of transmission uh, in the country, the number of cases that we're seeing on a daily basis is quite small. I think one thing that we've learned is that previously in healthcare, we were focused on just in time inventories of supplies, that was all supplies, drugs, personal protective equipment, et cetera. And I think that approach to inventory management didn't serve us well during this pandemic. So I think individual providers are gonna have created more inventory for needed supplies. The state government has done the same. And I hope the federal government has done the same as well. So if indeed there's another surge and we're certainly seeing it in substantial parts of the rest of our country, hopefully we'll be ready from an equipment standpoint than before. And, and we certainly know how to dial up our capacity if uh, if needed.
0: So other states that we see the COVID pandemic surging right now, like Florida, Arizona, Texas, what can they learn from Massachusetts? That Massachusetts has sort of gotten over the first surge and the numbers have calmed down. It's
2: it's not really comp- very complicated. I, I don't think you can really reopen society and until the transmission rate is at a very manageable level. Uh, to do otherwise is just playing with... Fire, and I think unfortunately that fire is um, at the moment out of control in certain parts of our country. And I certainly hope they can get it back under control. But when you see, I believe it was in—I don't remember—it was Florida or Texas that 30, 20 or 30 percent of the tests that are being done are positive for COVID-19. In Massachusetts, that number is about one or two percent. So it's quite clear that some some of our, the states in this country just open, reopen the economy, allowed people to mingle with one another far before they should have, to the extent that there are rules in those states about social distancing and wearing masks, there are too many people who aren't paying attention to that and and violating those rules, putting themselves and and others at uh, at some degree of peril.
0: It's unfortunate that what seems to be a common way to deal with healthcare by asking people to wear masks has in some ways become some what political, which is unfortunate. I hope that people will realize that they can save lives, their own or others, by wearing a mask. But, you know, we're an open country. People travel from place to place. It's still, people are still able to travel, um, either by, you know, airplane or or in a car. What happens if people from other states where the virus is is surging come here?
2: I think it's potentially trouble. And we, we own the hospitals on Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Uh, they about a month ago more or less had no cases on on those islands and now there are a couple of new cases appearing almost every day from other states people who weren't aware that they had the disease but developed symptoms and are are positive so I I think we're seeing before our eyes that this disease will will be introduced to a greater degree in our into our state by uh, interstate uh, travel I just hope those other states will really clamp down hard on social distancing and mask wearing, and not only for their own sake, but for the sake of places like this as well.
0: Every state is is different. The governance is different. I particularly noticed that in Israel, with a similar size population, they've been able to keep their deaths down to under 400, whereas in Massachusetts, we've reached over 8,000. Any idea why that happened here in a state that took it very seriously and had very strong leadership in addressing this?
2: haven't seen any good comparative data between us and in israel uh, i would point out that more, probably more than half of those deaths occurred in people living in nursing homes which and i'm not mean, meaning to trivialize those deaths in any any way but i, I believe here in massachusetts 95 percent of the deaths occurred in people 70 or older, only 5% of people. Um, 69 or are, are younger. So this is clearly a disease that disproportionately affects older and sicker folks, and uh, and particularly those in nursing homes where this can spread like like wildfire. But I, I don't I don't know enough about what we did compared to what Israel did to know what. What, what resulted in the in the difference in, in the outcomes.
0: They swiftly locked down all foreign travel and, and sort of yes. isolated the country and, very quickly.
2: And, and I think one of the reasons that Massachusetts, New York became hotspots early on is because of the amount of uh, travel from Europe, from Asia that, that comes here, which in most times, most cases is a good thing, but certainly may have hurt us uh, at th- this past spring.
0: So we um, released a white paper with a bioethicist out of um, University of Pennsylvania, Dominic Sisti, that looked at the allocation of resources during a pandemic with regard to people with disabilities, as well as others with underlying in- illnesses. It's my understanding that MGH never ran out of ventilators, but did the hospital leadership discuss what was going to happen and who was going to decide who would get one and what criteria would be followed if there was a limited number of ventilators and more patients that needed them than, than you had.
2: Yes, we, we did have an active debate about that issue. I, we had it not only at the hospital, but at the health system, as well as at the state level. And it's, I mean, I found it to be one of the most interesting and challenging debates that occurred during this uh, pandemic. Uh, Fortunately, we never had to implement what are referred to as these crisis standards of care, but we did make significant progress in developing them. I guess at one extreme you could think the ventilator should be allocated based on who needed it first and if you and, and just do it uh, by the order in which patients come in. Uh, I guess another approach would be to uh, make some judgment about how likely it was that people were gonna survive this illness and how, what, what their quality and length of life was likely to be once the illness was over. And, and I, at least personally, was initially very attracted to the latter approach. It seemed like that would be the most utilitarian way to allocate the ventilators. But you realize as you head down that path that since certain people in our society uh, with uh, comorbidities, um, which tend to be more prevalent in minority communities that you can quickly find yourself in a situation where you could potentially be uh, allocating these um, resources in a way that was racist or discriminating to certain uh, groups. Um, So it's a very challenging issue. I think at the state level, after some initial initial approaches that were more along the lines of the latter approach, uh, I think the state sort of backed up a notch or two and... um, try to, again, um, put in place criteria that would allocate these resources to people who would benefit from them, but at the same time, try to avoid discriminating by any categories that would, would be objectionable, b- based on disability, based on race, based on age, based on uh, ethnicity, etc. But it, it is a very challenging uh, and obviously, critically important uh, issue. And I hope we never have to implement these uh, crisis standards of care uh, during my lifetime.
0: But again, these crisis standards are being developed state by state. There's no federal guidelines as to how to handle these types of situations.
2: That, that is correct. Uh, there were guidelines that were issued by the state of Massachusetts but they were there were guidelines to, to hospitals and 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 providers um, and and we had s- uh, some experts in this field that were very actively involved in the development of those uh, guidelines but i think we all breathed a sigh of relief when the numbers started heading in the right direction and we never were forced to uh, to implement them
0: uh, you know my sense is that the public really wants desperately to get things back to normal do you think there's a point When you would feel comfortable not wearing a mask, not social distancing at a big event where people would be able to go back to restaurants and bars and concerts and ball games, sort of like being over, are we ever going to reach the other side or is our life permanently going to be changed?
2: Well, I don't think it'll be permanently changed, but I think it's going to be changed in all likelihood until we have a vaccine that is, or vaccines that are widely distributed, and where we've achieved, and through a vaccine, we've achieved uh, herd immunity. Um, and until that time, unless you know you've been exposed to the disease and have protective antibodies, I, I wouldn't advise the kind of activity that you're you're describing. So, so I think we are in in a holding pattern. Uh, I mean, clearly now that we have serology testing. Some people do know that they've been exposed. We're not sure yet whether that exposure confers immunity. So it's probably wisest for, for everyone to uh, to be careful until they're certain that either on an individual or a population basis we're, uh, were protected. Th- this is a very nasty uh, virus, 10 or 20 times more lethal than, than influenza. And although most of the deaths uh, occur in older folks, certainly not all of them, and if you look at how Frequently, people get hospitalized, and I think at our hospital and around the country, about 40% of the hospital beds utilized by uh, patients with COVID-19 were among people younger than 60. So young people can get very sick. They tend to survive, but, uh, but they, they're in for a pretty serious illness in some cases.
0: When we had the last major pandemic, um, we, I mean there been, there's been several, but the, but the, the big one in 1918, I'm not sure, I don't know if you know that if there was a vaccine that was produced at that time, but it, but it seemed like after a period of time, after several waves and, and many deaths, that it went away. Is there something about a virus that sort of runs its course?
2: I believe that that happened before vaccines were were available. So it just, it did have to run its course. And obviously there were no viral therapies available back in the early 20th century. Uh, Viruses and infections in general do tend to peter out when about 60, 70% of the population uh, has has been infected and is immune. It's just, it's harder for the virus to find somebody at that point that is uh, uninfected. In in epidemiology, there's this um, transmission rate factor of R and if R is, uh, is greater than one, the, the virus or, or the infection will grow exponentially. If it's less than one, it will decay and eventually disappear. Here in Massachusetts, uh, R, we're just uh, right, right at about one. In other states, uh, they're significantly over it, and we're seeing exponential growth of the infection. So the key is to get R uh, below one, and then the, you, see, you see decay in the, in the number of cases o- over time. And, and that's what's required for it to eventually uh, disappear. I mean, we've been through one significant wave in this region and places like New York, but the best estimates are that only about 10, 15% of the population has been exposed. So there are a ton of people who have, have had no exposure to this virus. And, uh, and if, if those people were to get exposed all at once, there's no doubt that it would overwhelm our, our healthcare system. The key between now and when a vaccine is available is to just make sure that ongoing spread happens slowly. We, we can't eradicate it, but we can hopefully keep it under control so it progresses slowly, um, hopefully primarily in younger people who are less likely to die and, and just not at a rate that uh, overwhelms the healthcare system. And again, here in Massachusetts, at this moment in time, we're doing that, and hopefully that conti- will continue as we move through the various phase- phases of reopening and as uh, other parts of the country get their problem under better control.
0: Yeah, I want to thank you for your, for your leadership. There have been cases where there's been lack of leadership on various levels of, of society, and I think that that contributes to the fact that people are not taking the precautions that they need to protect themselves and others. But I wanted to ask you, you know, you run a major institution, healthcare institution at the forefront. This has been going on for 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 many, many months. You must be dealing with a lot of personal stress. How do you handle this personally? And how do you take care of yourself and your family during this time in order to continue to lead um, such an important institution?
2: You yeah, know, that, uh, that's... <laughs> Good question. I don't want to dwell on myself. I don't want anybody to feel sorry uh, for me. But uh, certainly during the height of this, um, it, it was sort of nonstop, seven days a week. Uh, life has returned to more normal now that the number of cases are under control and we're we're providing lots of other uh, care as, as well. But I'm, I'm working, as you can see right now, a fair amount from from home and because most of my day is um, rather than being in person-to-person meetings is in zoom sessions and conference calls and and phone calls and so not a whole lot of sense for me to sort of go into the hospital and sit in my office by myself when i can do that do that from home so i'm practicing what i'm trying to preach about remote work this has been a stressful time i mean we, we are now as i said to several groups in the hospital via zoom dealing with three epic issues, any, any one of it on its own would be in, enough to keep us occupied, but we're dealing with three simultaneously. One is the, the virus and the pandemic and how we continue to care for patients with it while we expand the number of other patients that we're caring for. Second is, is dealing with the financial consequences of COVID-19 and steadying the financial ship of, uh, of Mass General. And then lastly, this issue of racism and social justice, which has emerged so significantly in our society at, at this time. And so we're just thinking about how can we, within our walls and more broadly, take dramatic steps to uh, to combat racism and advance social justice. And I, I think this is a unique opportunity in our history to been the the arc of the moral universe uh, toward toward justice, and we're we're committed to doing that as well.
0: Has Mass general begun to delve into the issue of racial inequality? From my own experience, you know my mother had a very serious um heart issue, she was hospitalized for a while at Mass General last summer. She had excellent care, and the doctors and nurses were of all different ethnicities, races, religions, from all different parts of the world, and just, you know, top-notch. So, in my opinion, I think Mass General was in a good place to start with, but I'm sure you've done extra work seeing the national discussion on racial injustice that's happening, you know, throughout all sectors of society.
2: No, I I think it's something that we've been focused on. I think we've certainly made progress over the years, but I think we recognize that there's a lot more progress that we need to make. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that your mother's experience was a positive one. Uh, we we do benefit from a very talented workforce that comes from all over the world and i worry a lot about our current immigration policies and the impact that's going to have on the quality of what we do in in the long term but there's a lot more that we can do on the racial social justice uh, front um we're so we're finalizing a set of um, initiatives that we will launch. We're going to be reviewing them with our board later this month. And uh, we, we want to, um, again, u- use this unique opportunity in, in our history and our lifetimes to, uh, to significantly a- advance um, the issue of equity within our organization. And, and I think there are lots of ways that we can do it.
0: Well, Dr. Slavin, thank you so much for joining us today. This was extremely informative. Again, I wanna thank you for all the work that you and your staff has done to keep um, our community safe and to help the world in general. So I know you have a lot of hard work ahead of you, but thank you for taking the time joining us today.
2: Well, it's an honor to do that work and pleasure spending
1: some time with you. Be well. Take care. All Inclusive is a production of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Our key mission is the full inclusion of people with disabilities in all aspects of society. You can find All Inclusive on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. To view the show notes, transcripts, or to learn more, go to rudermanfoundation.org slash allinclusive. Have an idea for a podcast? Be sure to tweet at JRuderman.